And also, uh, are you up meals? It's a great opportunity uh, to do that. So if you don't know any of those, who any of those people are at RF Meals, you want to go, come talk to me or talk to someone up here at the, at the end of things, and we can kind of point them out. So just in case you're not sort of awkwardly sitting on the stage area that's not no longer there in the house. Okay. Um, finally, community service. We're going to keep state great uh, this Saturday. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> We're RAF, just a little bit about community service. RAF, uh, this last week, I think it bears repeating. RAF is uh, all about making where we are better, more beautiful, more good, more true. And uh, we believe that Jesus uh, came to earth and he loved people, not just spiritually, but also uh, physically. And so we're hoping that we can love people physically as well. And so if you want to join us in that effort, picking up trash, painting curbs, whatever they ask us to do. Uh, please do. Cool. All right. So look how quick that was about the, the sign-up sheet. I mean, that was amazing. Um, so what are we doing here? Uh, we're looking at the I am statements of Jesus in my street. Those are the things that Jesus says that start with I am. Okay, we're looking through the Gospel of John. We started in chapter 1. We actually even started earlier than that. It's just 3 all the way back in the very back of the beginning. And we're looking at passages where Jesus talks about himself, those people who are following him around in the Middle East. And we're looking at those passages um, where we look on and read over their shoulders, so to speak, 2,000 years later. Jesus says things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life, and so on. And so that's what we're studying this semester. Therefore, our working title of the semester is... I am divine. Yes, look at that. We're coming alive. I knew it was just a beautiful jingle. Um, ready? I'm loving it. Ready? I am divine. So I am. Is that memorable? Unforgettable. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, someone said that to music. <laughs> Clearly, the Galveston song isn't working. Uh, all right. Look, I'm trying to capture by our title seriously uh, that knowing Jesus, the I am, changes how we understand ourselves, who we are. And more than that, it transforms knowing Jesus, the I am, transforms every part of ourselves, not just our minds. That's really what we're getting at by that incredibly catchy title um, and kind of what our series is all about. So before we look again at chapter 10 of John, uh, that's in your bulletin and also in your Bible, if you have one, let me tell you where we've been. I did a little survey of this one quickly. Okay? We started with some introductions. I wanted to introduce us to Jesus. And I thought we needed to start in Exodus. So we looked at where God describes himself, calls himself a Hebrew name, Yahweh, which was so holy that the Hebrew people didn't feel like they could say it. And so um, it's a translation as I am. The best translation I think is I am. Sometimes you get the Lord. And so when Jesus says I am, when you got in the door, he doesn't mean just I'm a door, look at me being metaphorical. He actually means I am God who is like a door. Okay. Also, we looked at John chapter 1 as an introduction, where we looked at what does it mean to confess with our mouths that we are not the Christ? And how does that set our hearts properly in order to worship and see Jesus aright? And then we looked at a few other Jesus I am statements I am the Messiah, I am the bread of life, and then I am the light of the world, and then we had a guest speaker we got last week, and here we are. Okay, but, I mean, don't you feel like it's like a, it was, that was like a comprehensive exam there, guys? I mean, you guys, I'm telling you, classroom all the time, right here. 
I know that you guys are really stoked about it now. Okay. So, again, I'm feeding off this, just so you know. <laughs> Swimming in it. Swimming water in it. Okay. So, tonight we're looking at I am the door. Uh, also, I am the door of the sheep. In John chapter 10. Uh, so, as we look at what Jesus says about himself and what that means, would you turn, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 10? If you don't, you can flip it in your uh, bulletin. And as you're turning there, if you're thumbing through the Bible, John is in the last third of your Bible. And it's after Luke and before the book of Acts. So, uh, if you want to just, if you're, if you're color sensitive, just look for a lot of red text. Okay, that's, that's John. Okay. I'm going to stand for the reading scripture. We'll do this all some good. Okay. We're looking at John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that means a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. They do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out of the pasture to find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, the sheep, may have life. Those who enter may have life and have it abundantly. These are the words of the Lord of God. Okay? They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey. Even honey from honey. Would you pray for me? Father, we're thankful to be here, um, despite our quiet awkwardness. And I pray that you would teach us what it means uh, to learn from you, to sit your feet, to gaze up, to know who you are better, to hear you speak about yourself, um, to know what it means that we're going to take you to your word and then go from there. I pray, Father, that you would move your spirit in this room. Um, we especially need it every week, but also tonight. And I pray that you fill our hearts uh, with a desire, itching ears to hear your word, um, to see Jesus, to understand what he's saying about himself, to understand what he's saying about us. And I pray, Father, that you would be merciful, kind, and patient, and Blow the heavens down and meet us through your word, holy man, holy God, that we might make it sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, more precious than the divine gold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You be seated. Thanks. Okay, so a few weeks ago I uh, began my little talk with a reference to contemporary Japanese literature. And so I thought it would be appropriate to begin tonight with a reference to Drew Brees. <laughs> does, anyone, does anyone know who Drew Brees is? Ish. Okay, for the non-NFL people. Uh, Drew Brees is a quarterback. He is a pretty good quarterback. Um, he's got a lot of records, right? So I looked this up on Wikipedia so I know it's true. Um, he's broken like pretty much every passing record known to man. He's got the most consecutive touchdowns. 
in the game. He just beat Johnny Mettis a few days ago. He's been following NFL well. Um, then also, he has the most single season passing yards. And he also has, um, let me look this one up. He has the most touchdown passes in the season as well. Okay? So he's a pretty big deal, but not a very good man. He's about six foot. Okay, so theoretically, the Drew Brees was talking. Yes? He's in the Nightclub. He is also the Nightcore commercials, and he pretty much single-handedly saved New Orleans after Katrina. I'm just saying, <laughs> FEMA trailers didn't do that much. That's all I'm saying was his true breeze. Okay. Anyway. So, but we have to understand before Drew Brees was Drew Brees, before he was like an all-star and most of the people knew who he was, um, he was just sort of an ordinary guy that just went to Purdue and got drafted and kind of played a lot of second-string football, okay? Uh, he got drafted by the San Diego Chargers, and he played a few seasons as a quarterback that no one really knew and no one really cared about. But all of a sudden, he started starting uh, games and started winning. And as he won, more and more people in San Diego got pretty excited about him and, and got more and more thrilled about what he was doing. And so what was interesting was that a lot of people started to know who he was, but they didn't know what he looks like. Okay, so like he was one of those guys that was so obscure, he came so fast into the limelight, and everyone was like, Drew Brees, he wears a helmet a lot. I mean, you can imagine some of the confusion. Okay? And so they're like, Drew Brees, Drew Brees. But what does he look like? Um, enter the greasy, sleazy guys in the San Diego nightclub scene. Okay? Enter that. A few men, you know the kind of people who half zip up their velour tracksuits so that their hats crowned with chest hair and gold chains, well, nearly gold chains, uh, can attract the lady folk. Those kind of people. Okay. A few of them invented this amazing pickup line in the early 2000s in San Diego. And it went like this. This is your story. Hey, I'm Drew Brees. You know, the quarterback of the San Diego Chargers. Want a drink? And guess what? It worked. <laughs> it was an amazing pickup line. It had a huge success rate. Okay. I don't know what it was about. Uh, maybe it's because every lady is sort of trying to like avoid eye contact, and they heard the name Drew Brees, and they did the mental math, and said, I've heard that name. He lives in San Diego. I don't know what he looks like. Maybe it's this guy who's <laughs> asking me for a drink. But I guess there's also something lonely and tiring about life that these women thought sharing a drink or sharing a night with Drew Brees would solve. I don't know, but that's what happened in San Diego in the Wildstorm, so much so that the National News caught it. And I saw that on uh, Yahoo News, so I'm sure it's true too. Okay. In some ways, what was happening in the San Diego nightclubs in the early 2000s, in that whole scene, is a lot like what was happening in Jerusalem. Near This is a segue, people. Watch out, it's better. There are these greasy, sleazy uh, guys. The Bible calls them Pharisees. Yeah. These aggressive men started to corner slightly afraid, well-meaning religious people okay, with these well-rehearsed pickup lines. They picked up religious converts by claiming that they were someone they weren't. They claimed to have all the religious answers that everyone needed, the way to fix lives that weren't working right, the way to soothe hearts that were lonely and tired. They claimed to be the fix, the Messiah, the Christ, or at least to have all the manuals, the law books, and the self-help programs that a Christ-like shepherd would need. And just like those San Diego predators, once you agreed to open your heart and your lives up to the Pharisees, they just couldn't deliver the goods. They were no Drew Brees. 
The loneliness, the fatigue, the misfortunes of life got harder and not easier. And they crowded out, these Pharisees crowded out any hope for change or transformation or forgiveness by spiritual threats. That was life in 32 AD in Jerusalem. But enter in Jesus who promised a shelter for weary hearts and green pastures for those who were spiritually starving. Jesus comes into that dark bar, that sad and silent nightclub where we sit. Jesus enters into our dark dorm rooms and those sad and silent bench front row seats of our cars. And he, Jesus, the Christ, the fixer, the Messiah, the true and good shepherd, offers us security and freedom. For real. In our passage tonight, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, Jesus tells us this, I am the door to rescue and abundance. I am the door to rescue and abundance. Will you enter by hearing my voice and following me? Okay? He says, I am the door of rescue and abundance. Then he asks the question, will you enter, will you, will I enter by listening, hearing his voice and following Jesus? Jesus says, I am the door, verses 7 through 10. That's unpacking a earlier story, verses 1 through 6. So he's got an explanation tacked onto a story, and that's the structure of our passage tonight. Verses 1 through 6, Jesus tells a story, and the story is about a shepherd and a bunch of sheep. It's about Jesus and us. And then verses 7 through 10, Jesus explains his animal science okay, by saying, I am the door of the sheep. Okay? So what is the point? The point of verses 1 through 6 is this. Will we hear Jesus' voice and will we follow him? Verses 7 through 10, the point is this. Jesus is the only point of entry into rescue and life. Verses 1 through 6 tell us we're sheep who need to listen and follow. And the question becomes, who do we follow? Who do we listen to? Verses 7 through 10 tell us there's a door to rescue and abundance. But where is that door? Let's start with Jesus' story. It's always fun to start with stories. Verses 1 through 6. Okay? He's talking about sheep. He's talking about shepherds. He's talking about voices. He's talking about thieves. He's talking about who to follow. That's what we're looking at, verses 1 through 6. Okay? Verses 1 through 6, we have to remember there's a historical backdrop to this. When the Bible was originally written, there were not chapters. Okay, so this is a consistent story. Same place, same time, same audience. So we need to backtrack a little bit into John chapter 9. I'm going to do the best that I can to give you the two-second Sid Drew and authorized standard paraphrase version. Okay? Ready? Jesus heals a blind man by rubbing a spit-filled mud cake into his eyes. That's actually what happened. And everything seems great for a while. The man can see. He's happy. He's glad. Shadows become shapes. Shapes become people. It's like he's a new man. Jesus checks off a box marked sin and suffering undone. Check. Okay. One wrong is righted, and about a trillion are left to go. So Jesus has part of work, lots of things to do. Okay. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of Jesus trying to get to the next thing, 
the chief religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, say, whoa, 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 hold on a second, Jesus. Hold on a second, blind man in your family. And they shake the blind man down for info about this Jesus. And the blind man basically has to say, hey, guess what? He comes from God. Leave me alone. You know, they say, fine, we'll leave you alone. Out of my synagogue, out of the Jewish church you go. That's where you're going to be left alone. What was, the, what was the blind man's crime? That he was honest about Jesus and what happened, and he actually got healed. That was his crime. Okay? And that's why he was kicked out of the religious establishment. Jesus is clearly ticked. He's upset about these fake religious authorities doing their, their terrible business, their intimidation tactics, their heaviness to the people that he cares about, the weak. And all of a sudden, he storms up and he faces off against the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. Let me give you a parallel illustration. And it goes back to my intro. This is like Drew Brees hearing about all the con men picking up ladies in the nightclubs of, of San Diego and saying, and jumping into the scene, entering and saying, hey, I'm the real Drew Brees. I'm the real Drew Brees. Put down that drink. That guy's a sleazeball. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing, okay? But the guys in the dark of the club have been working their breeze story for over an hour, okay? They've been saying all the things that the girls want to hear. All the fraternity stories about Drew and Purdue. All of the incredible statistics and game-by-game, moment-by-moment summaries of his life. And so the con men have confused the con women quite a bit. And they're not sure who the real Drew Brees is. That's kind of what's going on in chapter 10. Okay, let me kind of help you out of that confusion. Jesus, Jesus has come upon a confused crowd of people who have been conned by the Pharisees. He's told the crowd and these religious con men that he's the Son of Man, the Messiah, the fixer of sin. But he's only getting back kind of what I'm getting back right now. Blank stairs. Okay? That's what he's getting back. So imagine what does he do? He describes what the Son of Man, the Messiah, the great shepherd, the true and good shepherd, what this person does. And guess what? It looks like the last two years of Jesus' ministry. And how does he describe it? In a story about a shepherd who cares about his sheep. One more Drew Brees analogy. Am I allowed to do that? Um, I promise I'll give up on it. Well, sort of until the end, because everything has to tie together. Okay. <laughs> this is like Drew Brees jumping into the nightclub, like getting all the TVs to televise his highlight reel. Okay? And then right after that, or maybe simultaneously on the other side of the, of the club, of televising the highlight reel of the not-so-professional junior high school football team manager's highlight reel. So there are Drew Breeses throwing touchdown after touchdown after touchdown, and everyone's cheering and going crazy. And then there these would-be con men are, these imposters, running down empty water cups and washing dock straps. There Jesus is, walking into a community, calling each person by name, telling them their personal story, and then turning around and watching everyone else, all of us, run after him. But then there's the Pharisees sneak attacking everyone else with some well-timed guilt trips about how they don't really participate in synagogue worship music and self-pitying 
self-pitying speeches about how much they dare to care about the sheep, even though the sheep don't care about them. Do you get what's going on here? Jesus is calling out fake religious leaders who have no authority and saying, I have authority, and let me show you what authority looks like. It looks like a shepherd caring for a sheep. Jesus is saying, I'm the true fixer of sin and suffering, and I'm describing describe to you how I love you, how I love my sheep. He says, I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd who enters through the front door, not the back door, not over the wall. I know my sheep instantly. I call them by name. I lead them into pastures that feed their souls. I protect them from permanent harm, internal and external. How? By taking care of people who are thieves and robbers like these Pharisees. But, unfortunately, the metaphor also means something else. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus, and it's not so beautiful picture of us. For sheep. I know, like, okay, maybe we need to mentally put down the pink coffee mug that your aunt has that says, Lord is my shepherd, what we love to drink out of on holidays. And we need to calm down for a second and look and think about what a sheep actually is. We're dirty, we're smelly, we're lazy, we're gentle, we're trusting. We're sheep. We're sheep. You know, God could have used a different animal, couldn't he? I mean, he could have compared us to something else. He could have compared us to, like, say, a chimpanzee. We would have been smart. He could have compared us to, like, a tiger. Then we would have been smart. Or not smart, strong. Uh, then he always could have compared us to a dolphin. At least we'd be fun. <laughs> right? But he chose to compare us to sheep. Why is that? Let me just, for those of you who grew up in a city like me and don't know very much about 4-H or agriculture, let me just take a step back and talk about what are sheep. Um, first, sheep aren't the most intelligent animals. Period, but also in the barnyard. Okay? They're easily distracted. They get lost all the time. They wander away, and then they can't live on their own in the wilderness that they wander to. Second, sheep aren't the strongest of animals. They don't take care of themselves all that well. They have trouble grooming themselves and feeding themselves properly. And when they fall down in weakness or weariness, oftentimes they just refuse to get up until the actual shepherd has to lift them and carry them on his shoulders back to the flock. Third and finally, Sheep are not the most fun animals. We don't all go to the zoo to go see the sheep exhibits. That's not what we all flock to. It's not three deep like the monkeys do, okay? That's not what we're doing, okay? On the farm, sheep are also a pain. They require constant attention and constant help, constant maintenance, okay? But as discouraging as this it is for us to be compared to sheep, it's all the more encouraging for Jesus to know that we have a Jesus, a shepherd who we can follow and who we can hear. Okay? A shepherd who calls us by name and leads us into rest and love and healing. But if we hear Jesus, if we really listen, the act of listening and the act of following are so closely tied to almost one movement. Do you get that? Um, this is because in the original language of this passage in the Greek, the word kuo, which means hear, has a sense also of obedience, to obey. So when you hear truly, you obey. You've heard this when people talk to you, your parents said, hey, listen, listen to me. You're not listening to me. You're not, what they're also saying is you're not doing what I told you to do. Okay? 
That's the sense in degree, especially. Okay? And so we know this. If we will follow Jesus, if we really and truly hear his voice, we will know how to live. We will know what purpose we've been put on this planet for. We will know for what we're doing and why we're doing it. We will know which way to put our feet, one step in front of the other. Your questions about career, your questions about dating, your questions about marriage, your questions about life in general are answered in this passage. And he's saying, listen to my voice and follow me. But what does this look like? Come on, guys. What does it look like to follow, to hear Jesus' voice and to follow him? What does it look like to hear it, to listen for it? Do we, like, all just sort of renounce our studies and go join a monastery where we don't talk except at dinner? Is that what we do? Or maybe here's what we do. We go by a hearing aid, we turn it up full blast, we climb up a mountain, and we wait for Jesus' voice to waft to our ears over the <laughs> desert winds. Is that what that looks like? Is that what it looks like to hear Jesus' voice? Here's the question behind our question. It's not this. How do I hear better? Okay? That's what everyone wants to go to. That's not the question. That's not how do I hear better. Sure, more silence and less distraction will help us tune into Jesus more. Sure, that's fine. That's true. But what's the question? What's the real question? The real question is this. How do I hear Jesus' voice? Where do I go for that? Where do I go for that? And you know what the real answer to the real question is? It's so obvious and so ordinary that all of a sudden a monastery feels sexy. Do you know what it is? Scripture. The Bible. Go to the Bible. Read the Bible. Okay? Jesus' voice in the Bible answers and asks the deepest of life questions. Okay? This is how and where we learn how to live. This is how and where we learn how to change. This is how we learn how to love. We learn it all in the Bible where Jesus' voice has been transcribed. And look, don't just go to the red letters where Jesus talks. Go to all the letters, because they're all from Jesus. Okay. Here's a little aside that's maybe interesting or confusing. We'll figure that out as I go. Okay, let's put it this way. All 66 books of the Bible were chosen because Jesus' sheep, his people, heard Jesus' voice in them. Do you realize that? Okay, so does everyone know what the canon is? The canon is those books of the Bible that they really are. All 66 books. Why are there less? Why are there more? Yada, yada. There are 66 books of the Bible because people throughout time and eternity, people throughout geography, heard Jesus' voice in all 66 of those books. And not many other ones, more than that, and not many less. Over and over and over again, it's been validated by history because Jesus spoke in those 66 voices, 66 books. Okay? Each book, in other words, sounds like Jesus. I know that's simple. If you want to talk more about canon, I'm more than happy to talk about canon. Okay? But that's a simple way of applying the scripture. Okay? Also, um, we should be honest too. That, G, that this, the Bible is not the ultimate life survival guide that everyone wants it to be. Okay? It's not the rule book that tells you exactly how to play this scenario in life every single time. And that's why reading the Bible sometimes, maybe often, feels like an act of faith. Do we get that? 
Okay, let me just give you an example. The book of Leviticus is there instead of the book of dating. Instead of the book about who to vote for, the presidential election. Instead of how do I reconcile evolution and creation. Those books are not in the Bible. The book of Leviticus is in the Bible. How do we reconcile that? Yet the Bible, and as much as the Bible is not B-I-B-L-E, okay? It's not basic instructions before leaving Earth. I hate that. So I just decided to provide it. Okay, so it's not that, okay? As much as it's not necessarily just that. It's not just an instruction manual. It also does help us. It also does encourage us. Because this is where Jesus ordinarily speaks to us. And reading it is listening to Jesus. Think about that next time we pick up the Bible. Hearing Jesus' voice about how much he cares about his sheep. The Bible promises us that our names, the names of Jesus' sheep, are carved into the hand of God. That's how he knows you. Think about this. That Jesus, that God loves you so much that it overflows. It overflows into acts and feelings of love for other people. That's what the Bible is about. And that's where we that's what hearing the voice of Jesus is about. Okay. So let's transition to verses 7 through 10. Now, as I do that, I want to tell you an interesting fact that in the ancient Near East, a shepherd also acted as a door. Okay? So let me explain what that looks like. He would lie down the street across the entrance of a sheep shelter. Okay, so think about this. There's like a rock enclosure and there's no door. The door is actually the shepherd's physical body lying across the entryway. That's the ordinary pattern in the ancient Near East. This was to keep the sheep from wandering off into the darkness and death. And this was to protect the sheep from predators like lions and bears and wolves coming into the enclosure. Okay? So there's a sense in which the shepherd naturally risks his life for a sheep by being a door. And so it's appropriate that Jesus doesn't just claim to be the good shepherd, and we'll look more about that next week. He also claims to be the door of the sheep. In fact, he says, I am the door. Twice, not just once, but twice, in verses 7 and 9. So let's look at verse 9, for instance. Okay? Verse 9 makes it clear that Jesus tells us we only get the necessary salvation, we only get the restored pastures by, or more properly translated, through me. Me, okay? And so maybe some of you want to minimize that word me. Again, I'd like to, it would be a lot easier, Okay? Uh, maybe be more comfortable, but the Greek in the original language is emphatic. It uses a form of the word me that is like basically like an underlining and italicized form of the word me. Okay? And what it means is Jesus is the only rescuer, the only one to deliver us from sin and loneliness and from fear and death. And Jesus is the only king. He's the only one to lead us to and from pastures that feed our starving souls. Look, if going to the Bible to hear Jesus' voice wasn't offensive enough, you're probably offended by now. The statistics just tell me that, right? 90% of Americans believe in God, and then only 20% of Americans believe that there's one way to God. Did you know that? 70% of people don't think there's one way to God who believe in God. It's a lot of people. It's the vast majority of people. Okay? 
So Americans clearly want to have one, more than one way to God. But Jesus is clearly telling them in the scriptures here that there's only, in reality, one way to God. Him, Jesus. That's hard. But let me tell you a story. Isn't that what we always do as pastors? We just do this sort of like dog and pony show. Okay, um, here's my story. And I think it's going to get to the heart of this. I promise it'll loop back. It's not going to be something like that. It might start out feeling that way. <laughs> okay, I was at the balloon fiesta. See, already? <laughs> uh, about on Saturday, okay, with my kids. We woke up at 4 a.m., we braved the darkness and the cold, and we went to the balloon fiesta in Albuquerque. Okay? Obviously, we're staying overnight because I wouldn't have got there in time for cruises. Okay, details, details. Um, and we got there just in time for the Dawn Patrol, which is a dozen or so of balloons that take off and flood, right? Um, by the way, if you're skeptical like I was about the balloon fiesta, like you're not from New Mexico, you don't get it, uh, you should just go see it. It's actually really worth it. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an Albuquerque balloon fiesta believer. That's um, <laughs> really where I am. It's okay. Um, anyway, my wife and I and three children were like so, it was just a beautiful scene. There was fire against cold. There was beautiful colors against darkness. It was just gorgeous in a lot of ways. And, you know, my two-year-old Carol really caught on to this. She loved it. And so she, like, begged me to get her out of the stroller and, like, get her up on my shoulders to see everything. And when I was carrying her in my arms, she would just turn every single way to see everything possible all at once. She wanted to see every balloon being filled up. She wanted to see every balloon take off. It was, like, her story. She loved it. She couldn't get enough of it. It was intense. Okay? And as the balloons lifted off, my daughter, Carol, who I'm holding, started barking commands. Okay, at the balloons and at me. Let me just give you a few of them. She said, true story. She shouts, more, more. <laughs> I want more balloons taking off that. <laughs> Second, she squeals, come back. <laughs> she wants the balloons that have taken off to come back to the land right now. And this is my favorite, hold it. Which means she wants to hold the balloons in her hands that are taking off in front of her. Okay? I guess my point is this. Carol was demanding what she wanted. But it was impossible. Okay? Although Carol was honestly expressing what she wanted. She wanted desperately to take hold of a hot air balloon in flight in her little fingers. That was certainly against the grain of reality. It's okay to desire things. But we have to be honest about reality. My guess is that every person in this room wants God to save everyone. And everyone wants to believe that all, all beliefs in the human world about the universe are basically the same. I certainly want to believe that. But what we want is sometimes different than how reality works. For instance, despite our best wishes, there are actually big mutually exclusive differences between the world religions. Here's a quick survey courtesy of Greg Maddy. If reincarnation is true, heaven with God is false. If salvation is by good works, then it's not by grace. If the Quran is the word of God, the Bible isn't. So if you're wrestling with the hard saying of Jesus that I am the door, we're glad you're here. I'm glad you're still listening. 
I hope that you can take the time to really think about these things and talk to people in RUF or friends of yours in the hall about what these things are about because I think good conversation is so important. But I ask you to wrestle with this at the level of objective truth and not subjective personal desires. The question should be, how does this universe work? How does it work? Not how do I want the universe to work. Otherwise, we're just two-year-olds telling hot air balloons what to do. We'll talk more about this in John chapter 14 as we go on. Okay. But I really want you to understand that Jesus' image of the door isn't just about how it's shut. It's about how it's open and what it's open to. That's the majority of the emphasis of the power behind this image. Read verses, let's read verses 9 and 10 again together, okay? He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does Jesus mean by abundant life? What do we promise if we enter by him, if we listen for his voice and follow him? What's the promise there? For the sake of time, let me put it really simply. It's union with God. It's a relationship with God. Okay? But let me hear, hear this to you, because you guys, a lot of you grew up in the church all the time. You don't really hear things sometimes. I don't really hear things, because I work for the church. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this for a second, okay? This is more than, more than, just living forever and not dying. Okay? Life is more than just living forever and not dying. And life is also more than, especially more than, a life without suffering, and lots and lots of money. Okay? Jesus is saying something big, and I think Leslie Newbegin, a commentator, really helps me with this. He says it this way. Life in abundance is both total security and total freedom at the same time. Okay, if you don't get that, it's okay. Let me explain. Okay, think about the post-9-11 world we live in, in America. Go to an airport security line. Okay? Look at every time you run a yellow light. Look up and see the traffic camera there, watching your every move. Okay? These things prove to us that it's not possible to have total security with freedom. Okay? Or think about it this way. The insecurity that we feel when we watch on the television a foreign warlord shake a rifle and say, I can do whatever I want. Or when we see our friend shake a beer can and say, I can do whatever I want. And he knows he's an alcoholic. Those moments of insecurity prove to us that we can't have total freedom with security. Only Jesus offers total freedom with total security. Jesus, the door, offers total security. We can be saved from ourselves and protected from others. And total freedom. We are free to go in and out to find pasture to feed our souls. How do we know this is true and not just another religious, pharisaical, come on? How do we know? Just look at Jesus' birth, life, and death. Okay? How is this not just another power play? This somebody named Jesus 
is born into a poop-filled stable. How is that grabbing power? This someone named Jesus lives to wash other people's feet. How is that going after status? This Jesus is someone who dies innocent on a criminal's cross. How is that willing to power? Jesus wants to give us total security and total freedom both. And that's why he lived and died for us 2,000 years ago. If we will hear, if we will hear his voice. Hear this radical message. You don't have to give God to God to get from God. God doesn't only help those who help themselves. God doesn't need something from you. He's not driving you to succeed. And he's not hammering you over your failures. That's false guilt, and that's not from God. If you hear Jesus, the voice you'll hear says this. Jesus was hammered with all of your failures, with all of my failures, on a cross. By his resurrection, Jesus gave us the total security of his love. And I lost my page. Beautiful. And he gave us the total freedom. The total freedom to love other people. Not just to love them to get what we want. Okay? Not just to love them so that they could prove themselves worthy, like the San Diego Prowlers or the Pharisees. He gives us the freedom to lay down our lives for other people. Because out of that secure, free love, we're able to lay socially and spiritually across the doorways of friends, of strangers, and of family. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us to know um, what it means that you care about us like that. That, you've, that you give us that ability. You give us that freedom and that security. And I pray that you help us to know what that is. To, to, to plunge into that. To ask questions. To wrestle with what it means to hear your voice. To plead your promises to you. When life is hard, it's not working right, or when our hearts hurt, I pray that you would teach us what it looks like. That you lay across the darkness to protect us from the darkness within and the darkness without. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.